0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this afternoon's briefing. ESI is very uh, glad to host this briefing this afternoon, taking a look at the plan and what we um, and, and what is really part of this. And so we are very, very glad that we have someone from EPA here to talk about that, as well as a very important organization whose memberships are our state um, uh, stakeholders in this whole important issue. My name is Carol Warner. I'm the executive director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. As we all know, that there has been a lot of anticipation with regard to the release of the final rule for the power plan, uh, which will be published, we believe, sometime in the next. Um, month. Um, maybe people will hear more about that. Um, and, and we are very, very glad that we are joined today by the heads of several very important state-based organizations uh, as we look at this very important issue in terms of how the Clean Power Plan is able to, again, is able to address uh, very, very key Issues in terms of the whole role of clean energy as we look to reduce emissions in this very important power sector, and the kinds of opportunities uh, as well as challenges that it uh, provides at the state level, uh, as states look at the kind of flexibility that they are being given uh, by the uh, proposed by, by the clean uh, power plan that is being issued by the Environmental. Protection So to start us off today on our discussion, we will hear first from Joe Bachman, who is the Associate Assistant Administrator for Climate and the Senior Counsel to the Assistant Administrator for Air and Radiation of EPA. And Joe has been at EPA since 2009. He has worked on a whole variety Prior to his coming to EPA, he spent a number of years uh, in the Senate working as a majority senior counsel to the Senate <laughs> Environment Committee um, and Public Works, and he also served as a legislative director to former Senator Joe Lieberman of Connecticut. So Joe brings an immense amount of experience from his years in the Senate, as well as He's certainly uh, extremely knowledgeable, many of us have looked at him for years with regard to his expertise on these very,
1: very important issues. Jill Well, thank you, Carol, for the introduction, and uh, thank you for um, letting me uh, share the program um, with the three other uh, organizations. spending a few moments recognizing um, their contributions and the contributions of their members, um, both to all that's happened in the last two years plus in putting together the Clean Power Plan, and looking forward to the fact that um, the folks that um, EPA is sharing the program with today um, will will be doing, I feel like saying, all the work going forward Um, because not only uh, as a formal matter um, uh, uh, will the states be uh, in the lead in implementing this program um, but uh, uh, the the three organizations represented um, will be contributing um, at least as much creativity and insight um, and leadership um, to the path of implementation of the Clean Power, clean power Plan um, as they have already contributed um, uh, uh, in, its, in its development. Um, and I will, I will do my best to repay them and repay your all's patience by keeping my remarks as brief as possible so that we can get to their presentations uh, and to the discussion. Um, I believe that uh, many of you have seen the slides that I am about to to go through. And really, the only purpose of of my part of the presentation is to sort of lay the the groundwork um, for the the discussion over the next hour. Um, uh, What I'd like to cover is at least some of these topics. Um, And I think I will start with looking at at the key changes we made um, to the the, uh, proposal that yielded the final Clean Power Plan. Um, and try to focus as much as possible on, on what the state's options are, um, and ultimately what the power sector's uh, options are, um, to achieve the environmental results of the program um, uh, at the lowest possible cost, um, uh, while preserving reliability um, and promoting innovation. Um, the uh, uh, I'm, I'm uh, always reminded that uh, uh, many of our slides are rather uh, dense um, in their composition, and that's why this is a good point to remind you all that the uh, uh, slide deck I'll be using is on our website and uh, available for a closer study than you might be able to to, uh, apply to it now. Um, uh, The changes we made um, uh, uh, focus in the Um, uh, As you know, our first job is to establish a determination about the best system of emission reduction. That's our job, EPA's job, um, to do a a qualitative and quantitative analysis as to what works best um, to reduce carbon pollution, and then to translate that into a standard. Um, Moving from proposal to final, um, we focused exclusively on the generation side. After having proposed uh, what we called building blocks that uh, represented a, a combination of generation
2: and demand side management. Um, at final, we based the standard only
1: on dispatch operational efficiency at coal plants uh, and greater use of zero-emitting renewable generation. Um, demand side energy efficiency, while no longer part of the mandate, um, as expressed in the the SER standard um, is certainly, uh, uh, in our view, a major option for complying with the standard. That either states using uh, um, public programs or the utilities participating in public programs, or or using uh, using the, the market for energy services, can avail themselves of. And while we took uh, took building block four, demand side of management, out of the mandate, we. Still see it um, as a prime example um, of how you can achieve uh, carbon reductions um, while maximizing uh, cost savings and the overall operational efficiency of, of the system. Um, we paid a lot of attention to uh, the timing of reductions. Now, we express the standard um, in two tiers. Um, first is an interim target. Um, And then it's a final target. The final target being uh, in place in 2030. And the interim target representing um, a standard that had to be met on average over a multi-year period. Um, At Proposal, um, we defined that multi-year period over the course of 10 years between 2020 and 2029. And our intention was to give states and utilities um, a significant amount of flexibility in choosing the time at which they achieved emissions reductions over that 10-year period. Um, we got uh, voluminous and abundant comment to the effect that while everybody appreciated the lip service we gave to allowing states and utilities to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, choose their own emission reduction trajectory or glide path, the way we had calculated the standards and the way we generated the state goals really as a practical matter, did not allow it. Um, At final, we were determined to deliver on that on the commitment. Uh, and from our own analysis and the feedback we've gotten since August 3rd, when the administrator signed the rule and the president uh, unveiled it, um, the feedback we've gotten is that this time we uh, got it right. Um, not only do utilities have until 2022 as opposed to 2020 um, to register their first reductions, but the way we structured uh, the phasing in of the standards for coal and natural gas plants uh, and therefore the state targets that are derived from those standards um, will work to provide utilities with the kind of flexibility and headroom that we had intended to provide all along. Um, uh, one of the things that people noticed about the proposal is that um, we defined the best system And expressed the uh, standard, if you will, that represented that determination by means of state targets. Uh, And uh, a great many commenters observed that that is not exactly how the Clean Air Act works. Clean Air air Act, in particular, Section um, 111, applies to sources themselves, applies to the emitters. So we made a a significant shift in how we calculated the application of VSER. And we applied it directly to the universe of emitting sources. Uh, Once we made the determination as to what constituted VSER, we then generated a uniform rate, um, emphasis on the word uniform, for all affected coal plants, uh, and a uniform rate. Again, emphasis on the word uniform for all NGCC. Um, so that uh, the uh, basis of the BSER, the standard in which we express BSER, um, more closely resembles uh, the way in which we've set standards um, since uh, uh, the beginning of the history of the implementation of the Clean Air Act. Now, we did not discard the state target approach. What we did instead is apply it to standards. Each state's fleet and generated, as we did a proposal, a state goal. Um, and the state goal is essentially the, the linchpin of allowing states a broad range of options and flexibility for uh, establishing plans and programs to meet the standards. Uh, the menu ranges from simply applying uniform rate to a state's sources to putting in place a variety of energy programs that yield in the end the equivalent um, of the the state target Um, in addition we express each state's target not just as a rate but also as a mass goal so that states have the option of using some form of emissions allowance trading in addition to the option of using emission rate trading in doubling back to the shift from expressing the this, expressing the obligation not as state goals in the first instance, um, but as emissions rates for coal plants and emissions rates for gas plants. Um, one of the things that uh, uh, emerged from the comment record um, is that the best system of emission reduction uh, as we defined it, uh, including measures like dispatch and uh, uh, the increased use of renewable energy uh, needed to capture the way the utility system actually works, um, which is not uh, a state-by-state system, um, but a system that operates over broad, multi-state um, rates. Um, and so the way in which we uh, calculated um, how much and how fast to apply renewable energy and how much and how fast to apply increased dispatch. Um, was uh, was calculated on a grid-wide basis, not on a state-by-state basis. Um, as a result of this combination of elements, we think we did a lot to promote the option, or promote a range of options that we were asked to promote um, by good many states, that and in particular by utilities, in ways that would really facilitate their adopting. Compliance strategies that maximize flexibility, uh, including again with the use of mission rate um, or mission mass trading. Um, we had proposed uh, that uh, state plans be uh, submitted under uh, uh, a, uh, a, three, a three-year schedule. Um, uh, um, one uh, a one-year schedule for states that need extension. A two-year schedule for uh, standalone state plans that did need an extension and a three-year schedule for state plans that involve multi-state strategies. And we became persuaded again by the ample comments and evidence in the record that to really be true to the on-the-ground reality of state administrative law, uh, which often includes participation by state legislatures, we really needed to accommodate a three-year um, state plan horizon. Um, while some states we expect will submit complete plans by September 2016, um, other states um, <coughs> have the option of submitting in <coughs> September 2016, um, what we call an initial submittal that essentially establishes two things. One, a reasonable basis um, for uh, an extension request, and two, some markers of progress that they've started the process of, of putting, their, putting their plans together. Um, And finally, uh, we opened up the uh, set of approaches that were available for states that wanted to uh, adopt multi-state trading. What we contemplated in the proposal was only one mechanism, and that would be upfront interstate uh, agreements. Um, What we uh, devised, thanks to some very good suggestions from some of the folks at the table from other groups, Um, is that we build in a kind of trading radius. So we describe the forms of state plans that would have the effect of allowing sources covered by those plans to use credits or allowances from other states that themselves have uh, adopted comparable approaches. Um, This slide is is really a a way of illustrating the way set the coal rate and the gas rate, and then apply those two rates to the actual existing fleets of each state. Um, So that again, we have rate goals and mass goals for each state, but they are now, instead of the primary expression of the BSER standard, they're derived from establishing that standard on the source level. Um, uh, the folks in the room um, who have uh, kind of ridden along on this journey with us are, are doubtless familiar with what we call the building block approach. Um, and these were really the three, we're now, word before, now the three building blocks that we used to capture um, what we saw as the best system of emission reduction. Now, it can't be emphasized enough um, because of the way Section 111 works. Um, uh, and because of uh, uh, our uh, uh, extensive efforts of engagement and outreach, um, in many ways, what we define as the BSNR is a mirror of what we heard from states and utilities in terms of what they are already doing, um, either by design um, or as a collateral effect, um, uh, in adopting measures and policies that the result of reducing CO2. Um, so uh, uh, the BSNR uh, really is,
2: as much as anything else, a
1: record of what we were told. Um, states already have experience with, and utilities already have experience with, uh, in terms of what works to reduce uh, carbon pollution. And what we're seeing, and a great many other analysts both inside and outside the government seeing as the prevailing trends going into the future. Uh, in many ways, um, uh, it's the market, already existing utility strategies, and already existing state policies that, um, uh, that are driving uh, the SCR. That's why the focus is on uh, enhancing the operational efficiency of coal uh, power plants, increasing dispatch to existing uh, uh, natural gas combined cycle plants. Uh, and increasing the, the use and deployment uh, of renewable energy as what we've defined is the best way um, to reduce carbon pollution. Sorry, I lo- lost my target. Um, there we go. Um, I've already alluded to this. Um, the the Clean Power Plan timeline, um, taking account of both the state planning process and ultimately the utility implementation uh, process, um, you know, sums out at 15 years. Uh, We expect to see submittals a year from now um, from the states uh, uh, laying out the basis of their need for an extension and their uh, sort of down payment in terms of actions that they've been able to, to muster in the first year. Uh, September 2018 is when plans are due, uh, and January 1st, 2022 is when uh, the compliance period begins. But again, compliance is ultimately defined as uh, an emission uh, reduction total or emission reduction rate met on average over the 2022-2029 period. Um, so many people have observed, uh, and we are not arguing with this observation, that if states or utilities want to resort to a certain amount of backbone of their compliance, um, the way of the, the interim target, uh, permits that. Um, and we see that as uh, not, a, not an inevitable outcome, but certainly an outcome uh, that could be instrumental in ensuring liability and ensuring that innovative technologies have enough develop uh, and be deployed, uh, including intended infrastructure investments, such as transmission building upgrades to accommodate um, increased use of renewable energy. Um, uh, I think that I'm about to reach the point of uh, excessive leadiness um, uh, and probably going to lead it to Bill, who's in the crosshairs of the... Uh, whose who's members are in the crosshairs of figuring out what type of plan they, they uh, want to submit. Um, and if you don't think that chart is too weedy wait you to see this one. Um, uh, this, folks, is what uh, choice looks like. Um, and what we tried to do is, being directly responsive to what we were told states wanted to be able to think about, is we delineated uh, at least six different ways that states structure their compliance plans, um, ranging from rather straightforward uh, cap and trade or emission rate uh, trading systems um, to systems that put together a combination of requirements that apply directly to the power plants and complementary uh, measures and policies that as, let's say, an ensemble of activities result in meeting, meeting the state goal. Um, And uh, what we are looking forward to uh, from the EPA's perspective is a very robust engagement with states and stakeholders um, in the implementation of of the state's work in sifting through these options and and, and coming to a a conclusion um, as to which ones work the best for states. Um, Now, let me perhaps share what I think is one of the more salient Pieces of feedback the EPA has gotten from the utility industry. Um, the utility industry has generally been uh, uh, cordial in terms of engaging with us since, uh, uh, since, since the final rule came out. Not to say that they're entirely supportive, uh, certainly not put words in their mouth, um, certainly not anticipate that they will not engage in vigorous litigation. Over But at the same time, um, uh, what we're seeing is that the industry is spending a lot of time interacting with us and focusing on their options. And one of the things they have asked us to do and told us they're going to be asking their states to do is to start to coalesce around one or two basic approaches that can be applied on a broad regional or near nationwide basis so that they, the power plant operators, can be operating in a close to uniform environment with a uh, a normal and stable pricing uh, in terms of economic constraints. So one of the things that we will be supporting, not leading, but supporting um, to the extent that it's appropriate for us to do so, is dialogues between um, utilities and state decision makers in order to perhaps promote promote an outcome. I will uh, skip past that. I will go to uh, noting um, one other major component of the August 3rd um, signature package. Um, In addition to finalizing the clean power plan, which uh, in its the final rule defines states' obligations uh, as triggered by our finalizing a BSCR determination and setting standards, um, we proposed a federal plan. Uh, the Act specifies that the EPA has authority um, to apply a federal plan to power plants operating in states that do not submit or do not submit approvable state plans. Uh, the proposed federal plan focuses on a couple of different mechanisms. Um, in particular, a rate based trading mechanism and a mass based trading mechanism. Um, it doesn't reopen questions as to what counts or doesn't count for compliance doesn't reopen the question of what is VSCR. Embedded um, in those you know, proposed federal plan are two draft model rules that states need to use informally um, as guidelines or as, uh, uh, as examples for crafting their own plans. Or formally, states will have the option, this is what we propose, um, states will have the option of simply incorporating um, the model, one or the other model rule, uh, or if you choose to, to finalize one or the other model rule. And again, the model rules are mirror images of the two options that we propose for, for the federal plan, mass-based trading and rate-based trading. Um, we included one uh, significant uh, voluntary program. Um, within the Clean Power Plan. It's what we call the Clean Energy Incentive Program. Um, It's a uh, uh, what we think is a pretty classic state-federal matching fund program, but in this case the currency is not uh, dollars, um, it's emissions credits or allowances. The CDIP is targeted at projects um, that begin um, in the next couple of years and produce uh, either energy savings or emissions reductions or clean megawatt hours in 2020 and 2021, specifically from wind and solar, or end-use energy efficiency products that benefit low-income communities. Um, while as a final matter, we've defined eligible projects with respect to the kind of generation that counts, uh, we've set a 300 million ton uh, bank Of minted federal credits to be used to match um, state credits. Um, But we've left open a number of implementation questions, like, for example, what it means to benefit a low-income community, um, how you define a low-income community, um, some of the uh, finer points of what kinds of projects qualify and how they demonstrate that they qualify. And with respect to those implementation questions, we will be conducting a Following on public process and probably some kind of supplemental guidance or a supplemental rule. Um, we've also paid a lot of te- attention um, in the final rule, and we've directed states to respond in kind in their state plan processes um, to ensure that the concerns of environmental justice communities and other vulnerable communities and stakeholders are taken account of both in terms of the state plan process and the analytics supporting both state plans as they're submitted uh, and the implementation of state plans through the course of the program. Um, and I actually think that uh, uh, you've heard enough from me and it's time for me to turn the mic over to, uh, to my colleagues on the panel.
0: for providing that walk through uh, with regard to the final call plan and we will ask everybody to hold their questions until after we hear from the rest of our panel um, so I'm sure that you do have uh, a lot of things that you want to uh, get more clarity on uh, but we are now going to turn to Bill Becker who is Executive Director of NACA uh, very fondly known as and Bill is the founding director of, of NACA, uh, which is comprised of uh, it's an association of state and local air pollution control agencies encompassing 43 states, the District of Columbia, 116 metropolitan areas across the country, as well as four territories. And it's NACA's members that have the primary responsibility under the Clean Air Act for implementing our country's uh, air pollution control programs. And so that means the primary uh, responsibility for implementing this Clean Power Plan. And so one of the things that I think is also very interesting is in terms of the very uh, important role that Bill and his association are are playing to really try and help their membership uh, better understand and find ways to deal with the flexibility, all of the decision points uh, within the Clean Power Plan. At the same time, NAC has also been working closely with sister associations in terms of NASIO and in terms of looking at utility regulators, state energy offices who also deal with utilities and energy policy at the state and national level. So that together that they are really trying to look at how they can best meet the needs of their respective states, and do so uh, learning from each other so that there can be as much collaboration and peer-to-peer learning and assistance as possible. Uh, and so uh, we want to welcome at this time to we'll Thank
3: you, Carol, for that very nice uh, invitation, and to... Uh, and to your staff for uh, inviting me to uh, represent state and local air pollution control agencies around the country. So I'm going to spend a few minutes uh, following up on the excellent presentation that Joe Goffman made that set the, uh, the table for what is ahead for the states. Uh, but before I do, let me tell you what I going to talk about. Uh, I want to describe a little more who we are uh, what some of the general reactions are to the Clean Power Plan. And I'm going to try to give you a general sense of where states are coming from. Um, all states are different, and you'll find that when I speak about uh, their general view. Uh, how we're working with stakeholders. Uh, I'm going to make some comparisons of the state targets and show you how they differ and how some of the state targets have differed from the proposed rule to the final rule. Uh, describe a few of the state choices, I have a similar slide uh, that Jill presented on that very complicated um, array of options, but it's important if you see it maybe five times today, Um, it'll sink in, and then I want to end with um, spending a minute on um, discussing the consequences of standing down, of saying no, of deciding not to engage in this. So let's begin. Uh, We are an association, uh, as Carol said, of almost every, not quite, about state and local air pollution control agency. Uh, Our members are uh, responsible under page one of the Cleaner Act, um, given the primary responsibility of implementing the rules and regulations. And as part of that, um, we are responsible um, working with the state environmental commissioners in developing plans that meet EPA's (coughs) regulations. Uh, I will share with you some general observations about uh, what we like about the Clean Power Plan and some places where um, perhaps some states feel it's going to be a little more challenging. Uh, First, um, you know, we're very pleased even during the proposal that EPA provided a good 15 years to meet the ultimate targets. This should be sufficient time for um, for electric generating units um, and states um, to implement their programs and meet the final obligations. Um, We were concerned initially that ECA, on top of the 2030 deadline, the 15 years, um, took it away in part in the proposal by establishing an interim timeline that has been referred to as the cliff beginning in 2020, and many stakeholders, not just states felt, that required too much, too soon, and would set us up for failure. And I think, to EK's credit, they listened and they extended the initial phase of the interim compliance uh, timeframe pathway to start in 2022, and that's going to be very helpful. EPA um, heard loud and clear that um, the timeline for states submitting plans, not just for those that are asking for additional time for a multi-year plan, but just generally states who
2: are establishing uh, a a single um, state
3: plan, uh, needed more than just the one year, or perhaps two years. And so EPA for everyone has said, let's give three years for compliance there's a quick pro quo coming in with the first year plan, but this is going to be very helpful to overcome some of the initial problems that we face. Uh, this wasn't so much our issue at the reliability safety valve as a utility industry's issue, but it's one that did affect um, what's going on in the states, and we don't think it's going to be used much, but having a safety valve in the role is helpful and I think gives um, everyone ability to sleep easier, to know that if things do go awry, then there is uh, a way to address those problems. And finally, and uh, the next slide will demonstrate this, Um, perhaps not for everyone, so I don't want to paint too wide a brush, but uh, EPA made some very important changes to the targets to make the targets for many of the states more equitable. And this is a this is a graph that uh, uh, one of my colleagues in my office have put together that uh, shows in the blue the wider range of proposed goals. But in the red, um, they are narrowed considerably. So the, the difference between the, um, the most significant target and the least significant target has been narrowed considerably in the final rule that it was in the proposal at Joe had mentioned uh, some of those reasons. It has to do with, um, in essence, EPA taking a very conservative view of applying the same emission limit for coal fired and gas fired and depending upon the mix of fuels in a state, apply those accordingly. And the gap has been narrowed considerably, and it's more equitable. Here's another way of looking at the data. Um, This shows the differences between the proposed rule, state by state, we've actually identified the states. You can can derive this information if you look at the raw data in EPA's rule, we've just made a picture out of it, a graph out of it, but it showed um, the first 10 or 12 states show how obligations have gotten a bit more stringent compared to the proposed rule, and the last 30-ish states show how the final targets have gotten less stringent, and if you look at this just just along, you know, what the data shows, um, you could could argue that um, many of the states, um, everything else being equal, are doing better under a final rule than under the proposed targets, with everything else being equal. That's a simplistic conclusion, but this shows um, how things have changed from a final. Um, I don't want to leave the impression that everything was hunky-dory amongst the states with regard to the Clean Power Plan. Um, There are still some lingering concerns, and in some states they are legitimate, and they're going to have to work a bit harder to get through these. For example, uh, the deadline, even giving three years total for submitting a plan, is going to be challenging for some, especially where legislatures only meet every other year, or only a few months, 30 the year. So it's just a complicated rule, and it's going to take some extra work, especially by those states who have to adopt special authority to give them the tools to respond. Um, unlike the proposal, uh, states are not given credit for earlier actions uh, to the chagrin of uh, a number of states. EPA has taken other um, ways of trying to address that, uh, including the programming that uh, Joe mentioned with the clean on uh, of energy uh, program, but um, but nonetheless, um, actions that were taken several years ago are not necessarily going to be credited as he, as the states had hoped uh, initially. Um, some state targets are going to be difficult. Uh, not everybody did better under um, the final rule, and even if they did, uh, for some targets, it's going to be a new challenge for them. Most of the states haven't developed. Compliance plans do have uh, programs for reducing greenhouse gases, and it's going to take uh, a new and uh, uh, expansive effort uh, not only within the agency but working with other stakeholders who are impacted, unlike most clean air programs. I mentioned the Clean Power Plan remains complex, it's 1,500 pages, I think, to get through it. The states are really trying to get through it these days. I know very few people other than my office mate um, who has read the entire document and actually understands it. And uh, finally, and, and for those for those of you that are that are working when, um, for a congressman or senator, um, this last one is important. Uh, and, I, and, I, and please forgive me for sounding a bit parochial, but um, this program is not going to be implemented by itself. It requires resources and cleaner act Provides state and local air pollution control agencies with money um, that is appropriated by Congress to run programs. And this is a brand new program. The president requested $25 million to help states implement this program. And the Congress over the past couple of years has taken the entire amount out. And and if it doesn't go through um, this year
4: or even next year. Then we will be having to implement this very, very difficult program, resource intensive program
3: without any new money, and uh, that's that's problematic. Okay, so um, we are working uh, really well with stakeholders, and in a in a I think important way, um, this started. Uh, at the proposed state, when EPA came out with its proposed rulemaking for the Clean Power Plan, um, states, unlike any time I've ever seen in my over 40 years in Washington, D.C., began sitting down not only with the normal um, folks that they deal with on a day-to-day basis, um, the states reached out to other entities that have heretofore not been involved in policy development on clean air issues including state energy officials and state utility uh, regulators we will hear from in a second. And this was really important because most of the compliance options that will occur as a result of this program will necessitate a close relationship with these energy officials and utility officials. And that, those relationships are um, carrying through in the final rule. We already see, not even two months after the promulgation of the final rule, that a number of states, I've just listed a few, have already
2: begun stakeholder processes of sitting down with the utilities,
3: of sitting down with other stakeholders, including state uh, regulatory agencies uh, within their state, and try to figure out the best route to take and what they should be pursuing, what they should be avoiding. I think that's very important. There are a number of um, public meetings that are scheduled in the future. Uh, I bet everybody in this room has either been to, um, one of these stakeholders processes, or if they call their state regulator, that person could point to a number of ongoing actions. And this is all very good. Sharing of information, reaching out, and making making sure that we understand fully what the repercussions are going to be from any potential compliance strategy that we engage in. And, um, and I, I do want to put an exclamation point on this last item. He um, worked really well with um, NASCO and Neighbor over the past few years. And I'll just tell you a, a quick story. Um, a few years ago, and this is not embellishment, um, we would be in meetings, and the State Environmental, Energy, and Utility Commission from the same state hardly knew each other, either were never introduced, certainly never went to the same meeting, and imagine them having to work together on a common role or a common strategy. And over the past several years, uh, our associations have tried hard to bring these groups together. We all have different missions, but we want to do the right thing. And um, that has really helped uh, address some very daunting challenges that our respective um, groups face. And I keep saying this is really a sign of good government, that we're trying to work together in the common good to make sure we're not stepping on each other's toes and that we're trying to. Adopt strategies that actually mesh together so that we can reach the most cost effective solution. And I think it's working. Um, so let me give you a snapshot of, of where I and others think states are at this very early stage in meeting their interim standards and their final standards. The first point is information that can be um, derived from the rule and it's in chart form and it's very interesting. It says that nine states have budgets uh, in 2012 that are higher, that are that have more pollution, more greenhouse gases than the 2030 target. In other words, theoretically they don't have to do anything more to attain the 2030 target. It may not work that way in practice for a number of reasons. But their goal, their pathway, is going to be pretty easy compared to some other agencies. So that's kind of good news for them.
2: There are a number of other states, um, and this is not our analysis. This is one from, I think this was the Union of Concerned
3: Scientists report. But I will predict with certainty that there will be other analyses coming out in the weeks ahead that will reaffirm this similar conclusion. And that is, there are probably over half the states, in this case, 30 states, that are well underway, in this case, meeting over half of their obligation for the 2022 interim requirement. And about half the states, or close to half, 20 states, are halfway toward meeting today um, their 2030 Targets. And why is that? Well, this is because of existing strategies, um, primarily in the Clean Iraq, but elsewhere, ranging from the already announced requirement of coal-fired power plants to the incremental progress we we'll make on renewable portfolio standards to uh, energy efficiency resource standards and the like. So states are well on their way for meeting both the interim 2022 client strat, uh, interim strategy as well as the 2030 targets. And um, again, um, a lot more work um, needs to be done by a bunch of states, and there are a number of tools that will help that, and I'll just put in a plug for something that's on our website that we just published in the last month or two. And this is a manual of options um, that will help any stakeholder who's interested in identifying on every conceivable control strategy or program that could be adopted in reducing greenhouse gases. Whether it's the Clean Power Plan, or mayors or congressmen's or governors desire to reduce greenhouse gases, this will identify anything you can possibly think of, and also talk about the cost, the cost effectiveness, the potential greenhouse gas reductions, collateral, non-greenhouse gas, air quality benefits, and where that strategy has been employed. Uh, if you go to our website, wordcleanair.org, um, you, you can get a copy yourself. Not down, but at least it's a nice solution. Here is a, um, so at the last, at, at the first um, point here, I mentioned nine states have already pretty much done it. Their, their 2030 budget is targeted, uh, is actually lower than their current 2012 emissions budgets. Here is a graph that shows you those states, and the first nine states are pretty much there. Again, this is in theory; in practice, it may be different. It may depend upon future growth and other factors. But you can see, um, you know, kind of the relative relationship of where states are with regard to the 2012 emissions. Now, the one that really looks steep and scary on the right is Texas. And you would think, oh my gosh, look what they have to do. And I had the same reaction uh, until I learned that um, their obligation—I'm not fooling this—but their obligation is is 21 percent. They're kind of right in the middle of the pack with regard to the amount of reductions on a percentage basis that they have to make. These are the their total inventory, so they have a lot of emissions, and that's why this looks large. But you know, the first nine or so are the ones that have. Not much more to do in theory. Um, Joe did a really nice job of keying up the state choices and um, some of the compliance that they'll be engaging in. And these are gonna be be complicated choices. And and they're not they're not all, you know, they're not all consistent with one another. You know, we're gonna be, of course, looking at uh, lowest cost options, we're gonna be examining. Um, we're going to try to do things as simply as possible, uh, but sometimes the things that uh, appear simple are not, and the ones that are more complicated um, work out better in the end. It's very important for the states, and it's almost without exception to pre- to preserve state autonomy. Um, we do not want EPA um, to have federal enforceability. Over some of our programs, especially programs on energy efficiency, that have already been employed. And if anyone's in California, they know what I'm talking about. but Their economy-wide uh, greenhouse gas program. Uh, they have a lot of energy efficiency programs, and they're happy. You know, enforcing this themselves and they don't need interference. And the EPA's credit. They're not looking to do that. But it's an issue that's very sensitive to the states. Uh, and. We, we will, many states uh, will want to talk with other states and possibly engage in either formal or informal interstate strategies that will really help those states meet their obligations. Uh, this is the exact slide that Joe showed you. Um, and I will make three comments about this, just to show you the kinds of choices that states are making. The first is, the first choice a state will make is should they go to a rate-based program, pounds uh, per million BTU? So there's really no cap emissions. It's based upon the rate of generation of a widget. Or should they go to a mass-based program, which is pounds per megawatt hour, so it sets a cap on the amount of emissions that can be um, skewed? And that is, that literally is the first choice that that is stated in there. And it has a number of repercussions with regard to the stringency of the program, and which pathway F- to choose. This, this chart that you can put together is very helpful. It kind of gives you an idea of um, what, what's involved. The next point I'll make about it is after you decide whether it's a rate-based program or a mass-based program, you know, there are a number of different options within each. And you know, if you look at a rate-based program, the pound per million BTU. If you wanted to adopt, say, an energy efficiency program, there are some criteria that are extremely important that maybe David will get into in a second that that requires regulators to make sure that the energy efficiency gains are indeed credible. And there is something called EMP evaluation, measurement, and verification trust and verify. You want to make sure that what you're getting is indeed accurate and important uh, to account.
2: And in the rate case, So that's not an easy program, there's some protocols out there, but that's something that states will need to include in their compliance
3: strategies if they want to use energy efficiency. And the third point I'll make is whether it's rain-based or mass-based, if one pursues EPA's model rule, um, there are, as Joe mentioned, there are training-ready programs that um, allow the state to pursue that approach. And not have to reinvent the wheel with regard to um, the trading of allowances and the uh, credits and and the ability to, um, um, to be more flexible in implementation. Uh, almost done. Uh, we, on top of whatever what EPA is doing, um, we in Napa are developing uh, our own model state plan. Um, it is. Um, it probably will be similar but a bit more expansive than EPA's model. The purpose is to have a state-generated product with regulatory language and preamble language that can be used by states, um, literally, in toto or pieces in the development of their strategies. We are anxious for states to meet their obligations on time, and we're trying to do everything we can Sanctions or other penalties for not um, meeting these uh, obligations, and we hope to have this out by the end of this this calendar year. Finally, just I promised I would say a word about um, the consequences of saying no. So um, there are many in Congress, there are some states, and there are others who think it's better uh, to stay down, to say no, and to to fight the implementation of this program. And I can, I can only tell you that from our experience, there's nothing, nothing to gain from doing that. And here's why. Um, let's, 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 if the state wanted a federal plan, um, the state has to realize or if someone else wanted a federal plan, it's by definition going to be less flexible than a state program. And by being less flexible, it will be more costly. It will be less cost-effective. It would not avail the state of the flexibilities in the clean um, energy incentive program that Joe mentioned. Uh, and, and from what we've heard from the utilities who are directly affected by federal the funding, they don't want it. They would prefer having states develop a plan than having a federally imposed plan that restricts their flexibility. And one other point, if if I'm a state and I'm really anxious to have a federal plan, it still doesn't make sense because what what I can do is take a look at the federal plan, see how it addresses my concerns, and then take the best pieces of the federal plan and augment it with some other state strategies. That might make that federal plan even more palatable to the state. There is nothing to be gained by implementing or being subject to a federal plan, other than calling attention to oneself. And you know, given the importance of this program, I don't think that's really a good alternative. So with that, I'll conclude and say, uh, you know, the EPA's credit—they uh, did engage in an unprecedented level of of stakeholder involvement. And I think the final rule, while not perfect, and while it does have some concerns, and it is going to be challenging, does reflect that EPA listened in large part. Um, we hope that uh, most states will reject a federal plan and work with their stakeholders in implementing this program. Um, from what we can tell, people are working very, very quickly and responsibly in starting that process. And there
0: are plenty of tools, not just ARIS, help states. So with that, I think you Thanks so much, Bill. Uh, and I do want to mention that Joe's and Bill's slides will be available on, on EESI's website uh, probably by the end of the afternoon. And so I know that these has been very, very difficult to uh, but that will give you a chance to really look at them in much more detail. So, we're now going to turn to David Terry, who is Executive Director, the National Association of State Energy Officials, NASIO. And David has been with NASIO for about 15 years and has ably led that organization uh, in all sorts of matters uh, in terms of working with its state energy offices. Uh, that are located in 56 state and territory energy uh, offices across the country. nasio uh, and I should say state energy offices are involved with a wide range of energy uh, and energy policy issues that we often probably don't realize. And so it's important to understand the huge amount of responsibility that they have and therefore Hopefully, the whole role that they can play, as Phil was saying, in terms of working with the air regulators and certainly with with the utilities in their states, since they uh, work on on a whole variety of national energy issues, including natural gas, uh, electricity, uh, buildings, energy efficiency, renewable energy policies, industrial energy efficiency, as well as working in the whole area and being responsible for energy emergency response and reliability. So,
5: David. Thanks, and Thanks for uh, your time this afternoon. Just following up on some remarks that Bill made, um, I think the uh, collaboration between our three organizations and, more importantly, our organization's membership has been uh, remarkable It's made things, I think, go as well as they have the input we were able to provide to EPA, um, I think, in the formation of the role, um, was certainly helped by that collaboration. Uh, A couple of uh, uh, things to give you a sense of the lens that our
2: members bring
5: to this issue.
2: First of all, there's obviously a
5: great deal of diversity among the states with regard to the Clean Power Plan. For that reason, NANSIO has not taken a position on the Clean Power Plan. What we have worked hard to do, uh, along with our colleagues here today, is to ensure that flexibility um, and state options were preserved, and certainly reliability uh, and also affordability. Uh, to give you a sense of where our members come from, they are typically appointed by their governors. They either inform uh, or advise the governor on energy policy, broadly speaking. That's distinct from regulation. So, uh, many of the, the vast majority work on leading comprehensive statewide energy plants and energy in every sector, not just electricity. So uh, they bring that sort of a lens to, to bear as well as uh, an economic development lens. As, as a, no surprise to anybody, uh, governors and legislators are obviously always focused on uh, economic development as a part of what they do. So those are maybe some caveats to how the energy offices have approached this activity. Uh, I just want to touch on a, a few key points um, uh, Following up a little bit on what Bill said with regard to some of the issues that are being looked at with, uh, with efficiency, uh, one of the areas we've focused on in our work has been efficiency because, at some place, there's broad agreement that there are many no-regrets uh, elements uh, to that work. It's certainly a least-cost approach in most cases, so we so we spent a lot of time there, and also a little bit about what we've heard recently from our members at the Fortunate Workshop uh, about two weeks ago, and I'll touch on that as well. I think first and foremost, we've been listening to our states. And uh, in the case of our members, they look at not only the investor-owned utility efficiency programs, which are largely overseen by um, the utility commissions across the country, but also the efficiency programs and policies that the state carries out in other areas, whether that's building energy codes, efficiency resource standards, or importantly, from our members' perspective, private sector voluntary efficiency efforts. Uh, the sum total of those sort of non-utility program efficiency efforts are uh, significantly larger than the utility efforts from a dollar perspective. In the public buildings sector alone, there's about six to seven million dollars in cost-effective, uh, no cost to the taxpayer, no cost to the ratepayer, privately financed efficiency improvements in state and local buildings across the country. As one example, there are many other examples. So we look at those opportunities to help. Uh, integrate that with uh, the plans that states will develop as a least cost option to help bring down um, uh, the cost of compliance that we think is important. One of the I think, great benefits of the process that we had engaging a and NASIO and many outside stakeholders in the private sector, including utilities, has been to, to really broaden the, the perspective of what efficiency could include and then get into the more difficult uh, challenges of how we count that in a way that's uh, reasonable and appropriate from an area of perspective that has to to, uh, implement this plan on the state level. Uh, One of the places that I think uh, I would point you to if you have uh, time uh, after today's event is to look at some of the principles that Nazio de and MAPA developed before the rule came out uh, addressing a whole range of issues from uh, National Energy Efficiency Registry which I'll address in a moment uh, reliability concerns, uh, affordability concerns, and many of those things were picked up in EPA's final rule and has, has made that uh, process better. Uh, moving on to some of our more recent activities and things we're hearing from our states. As I mentioned, we had a uh, clean power plant workshop at the uh, uh, NASIO annual meeting about two weeks ago on September 16th. We had uh, energy officials from around the country at the meeting from virtually every state. Uh, We had senior staff from MACA and from neighbor care as well to provide input um, and help uh, uh, provide views from each of their organizations. And I think the the major takeaway is one that that Bill actually touched on nicely in his state choices slide, and that is uh, there's a lot of diversity in the choices that states have to make in the plans. And I think one of the things that we want to be careful to avoid in the advice and help we provide states is not to... Uh, Predetermined which path they take. There are reasons the state might take a mass-based approach. There are reasons states might take a rate-based approach. What we want to see uh, from an ANSI perspective is that we are taking least-cost uh, uh, approaches going forward, and, and principally that includes efficiency, but it includes other resources as well. I think the other piece that we heard from our members more directly is the clean power plan is certainly having a significant impact on the electricity system, but there were many. Uh, change is a transformation that we have in the electricity sector long before the Clean Power Plan is even even considered or on the table. Um, Certainly a a, a huge uh, move toward natural gas because of low cost and also low emissions and a variety of other uh, reasons. Uh, Many new energy efficiency and energy technologies that make uh, higher levels of efficiency possible. Um, uh, Microgrids, LED lighting, just a whole variety of approaches. Uh, to energy efficiency, and the use of energy, the distribution of energy, and the production of energy that weren't available uh, five and ten years ago—all of those things are coming to bear in the state planning process that, that sits alongside this activity. So uh, it is complicated. But I think on the other side of this, we have a move um, toward a really more robust and vibrant electricity sector in the long term. When you take into account uh, the uh, investments in infrastructure and resilience that go along with. Um, these changes uh, beyond the power plant. Uh, the uh, other item I'm going to touch on is uh, measurement, the evaluation measurement and verification in NMV. Uh,
2: we have found generally, uh, for those of you familiar
5: with, uh, particularly with investor-owned utility efficiency programs, there are there's a long history uh, and good examples of the NMV. Uh, there is a long history and great examples in the private sector uh, with energy savings performance contracting, and efficiency programs that are applied to state and local buildings, and a variety of other programs. Many of those have been noted by EPA, by the states, by our organizations, and I think um, the key takeaway in that area is, while well, it's important to get uh, the savings verified and get them right, uh, I also think it's important to not make the perfect of and good. Uh, we have, uh, we do have interests uh, in the private sector and the public sector making it be, I think so difficult that it would make efficiency uh, go from being challenging and a great opportunity to something that would be virtually impossible and so that's an issue we're paying close attention to and we're certainly hearing from our members on that as well. Um, one other uh, I think an important service that all three of our organizations provide uh, but Nancy is taking in a little different direction is responding to our members' questions. Uh, we're setting up a, a new service called Answering State Questions that was launched on September 16th. We'll take questions from any state uh, entity. Certainly it's focused on state energy offices, but it applies broadly to the Clean Power Plan. We'll take the questions that come in. Uh, we'll refine those if they need to be informed or expanded. Uh, provide those to the EPA and attempt to get an answer in a way that uh, hopefully moves everybody forward, makes that process uh, efficient. And we also have a group of experts, including uh, folks from the Regulatory Assistance Project, ACEEE, other organizations, and we'll certainly share the questions with Maybrook and NAPA as well, but in an attempt to respond to the, the state's questions in this area. So uh, I think that's an important new activity. Uh, again, we'll focus on trying to walk through the individual questions states have, but hopefully those will apply more broadly and uh, we can learn more rapidly uh, uh, as the planning goes forward. We have a few projects underway that, that run in parallel to our assistance to state, state energy offices in this area that we think of as sort of no regrets activities. Uh, one of those is work on an energy efficiency registry, a national energy efficiency registry. This is being carried out uh, by an organization called the Climate Registry along with several other partners. Uh, our role in this is working alongside seven states uh, that are uh, going to be working on the for that registry led by Tennessee, uh, also including Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, and Oregon. Uh, To be clear, that registry, although it has great application for this particular rule, it has great application for many other state activities, uh, reaching uh, agreed upon energy goals, efficiency goals that the state has, uh, meeting other air uh, requirements that are in place, and it brings a level of transparency and uh, fungibility of the uh, efficiency credits um, uh, that are that are out there. I think it also opens the door to a wider range of efficiency activities, uh, some of those private sector efficiency activities that are voluntary in nature, for example. Uh, I think lastly uh, the thing that we're hearing most and, and it's really been something we've been uh, changing our emphasis over the past three or four months. Uh, We had initially focused largely on national issues with regard to the Clean Power Plan, working with the states and how uh, we might impact EPA's rule. Uh, We have gradually shifted to providing more assistance to the states on an individual basis. And certainly a lot of the planning activities and stakeholder processes um, that uh, are both underway and need to be underway are something that we'll support with some of our experts on staffs and certainly uh, NAP and Maybrook as we move forward. Thanks very much.
0: Great, thanks very much, David. Uh, and now we will turn to our final presenter, uh, Charles Gray, who is Executive Director of Mayroof, the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. Chuck has been Executive Director of Mayroof for uh, 20, uh, well, since 1999, and has uh, been uh, working with Mayroof, uh, basically, for his whole career. And uh, we are delighted to have some Today. He, has, he knows so much about utilities at the state level, all the commissioners, how they how they function, what their needs are, uh, so many different issues. We are delighted to have you join us.
4: Um, Thanks, Cheryl for, for the kind of introduction. Um, that was very nice, and. Uh, I think we're supposed to be done at 2.30, so I'm going to go very quickly, so there's time for Q&A at the end. Uh, really pleased to see Joe here today. Uh, EPA has reached out to our members in in a way that we've never seen before from very many federal agencies, and it's been, I think, an exceptional exceptional, uh, relationship that we've carved out with them, so thank you, Joe. Um, I've got the standard disclaimers that, uh, that uh, David had as well. Um, first, these are just my words, so I, I'm not speaking on behalf of any given the specific name of members. And secondly, we too have taken no position on the Power Plan. Uh, we have members that have, and uh, I think once the, the rule is, is put on the Federal Register, we'll see which side of the litigation our members are on. I expect we'll see members on both sides of the litigation as it goes forward. To those of you who don't know um, what NAWF does, uh, we represent the state utility commission. So our members regulate electric service, natural gas service, water, telecommunications, and the like, and regulate their economics, so their economic regulators. Um, what that means is that the states, that, that the state commissions, uh, will have a, a large say in how the compliance plans are written, even though they won't be the principal uh, authors, if you will, of the, of the plans. Um, Almost everything that utilities do fall within within the jurisdiction of either the state commissions or FER, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which has been very active in working on this as well. Uh, They regulate transmission and wholesale market issues as well, Um, so uh, we need some coordination. I think with the three three N's, I won't go into that any further because I agree with both of them, both uh, David and Bill about the importance of all that. Uh, right now, our members are just considering what I call threshold issues, and I think we've heard some of them already up here today, uh, whether to do their own plan, or to d- defer to the federal plan, whether to do a single-state plan or a multi-state plan, um, whether to participate in the Clean Energy Incentive Program, whether to ask for more time, or whether to do a rate-based or mass-based uh, approach. Um, I think the states are just beginning to... De- to digest the rule, and as, I, and as we move forward, some of their choices become clearer. Uh, one thing we're learning, and I think I, I appreciate Bill mentioning the money that was not appropriated, um, is that the resource uh, for right now, all of state agencies, this is a heavy lift uh, implementing this this, uh, this rule. It's something I think, from the state commission perspective, that we haven't really seen uh, in my tenure, which is a long one. Um, at, this, at this scope and, and importance moving forward um, I won't go into why that through all well, the, the work the three ends have done together you've heard a lot of that but, uh, we are um, we started working together actually back in the Carter era the, the Clinton administration years and years ago and I'm still re- can remember that sort of and um, it's we started the, the relationship about three or four years ago and I think it's been very important to, to the, the success that we're likely to uh, have. What's neighbors take on the take on the Clean Power Plan? Well, our focus is primarily on two issues, and David mentioned them as well, reliability and affordability. Uh, we are working very closely with FERC, as I mentioned, um, and uh, as they were developing the proposal with the safety, the safety valve. Uh, we didn't take a, an official position on that, but many of our members were quite pleased to see it in the EPA rule that was issued. Uh, we anticipate moving forward that the uh, quarterly meetings that uh, EPA, FERC, and DOE are planning to hold under the as I understand that we have some, some, some participation in that. Uh, we also have a, a representatives on the Planning Committee of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, sort of an obscure agency uh, called NERC, um, as they prepare to provide technical support and analysis of the impact of the Clean apply our power plan on grid reliability um, just touching on some of the issues that um, the threshold issues that i mentioned uh, and I'll just finish with this what we're hearing from some of our state commissioners as they go forward on what their choices are, are likely to be in the next in the next uh, few few months um, the first question should a state submit a plan or should it defer to the federal implementation plan uh, my sense is that even states that don't particularly care about, care for the, the, the CPP, are going to work on plans. And the commissions in those states, their attorney generals may end up litigating the the, the, the rule itself. But they're, they clearly see the benefit and flexibility and control that doing a state plan uh, gives them. Uh, so I, I anticipate there will not be a large number of states that. And I think Bill's sermon probably convinced them um, that, uh, were, uh, that would would defer to the federal government. Should the state request an, uh, an extension to file their plans, I think from what we're hearing, a lot of states are going to ask for extensions. Um, although I did see in the trade press today that the governor of Pennsylvania has sworn on a stack of Bibles to have the, his plan filed next year. So we'll see how that goes. Um, rate-based versus mass-based. Um, I a lot of the discussion there it seems to be in favor of a, of a mass-based approach from the, the state commissions. Like They're familiar with um, how cap and trade programs work, worked in the past, and with the SO2 rule under the passive rain uh, program as well as some of the other programs. Um, however, I also read in the press today that Georgia looks like they may go, for example, for a, a rate-based program simply because of the nuclear plants that they're, they're planning to build and get credit for. So uh, it's advantageous for them to do that. They may be in an island as a result, but uh, we'll see. Um, another quite issue coming up, should a state submit its own plan of EPA or opt for a multi-state or regional plan? Um, as I think you've heard, uh, the electricity grid is not a single-state plan, it is a regional, Plan is uh, there are three interconnections in the United States. Uh, Texas is, uh, has its own uh, interconnection, but the rest of the other two uh, interconnections actually are many states. The grid is interstate, the markets are interstate, and I think we're gonna see compliance plans taking that into account. Um, there also is, I think, a growing understanding of multi-state plans can be cheaper, can help uh, be, to be more reliable and uh, more efficient uh, should a state authorize trading as a compliance strategy? That sort of goes hand in glove with a the, with the multi-state uh, approach, and uh, uh, I, I suspect we're going to see that the, the real interest in, in doing trading is uh, a multi as a compliance plan going forward. Um, there's a growing number of studies that support why you should do that. Um, unfortunately, I think the state commissions are going to have a say in how that's that structured the trade the trading uh, red regimes uh, simply because uh, if it's done by utility, it, it implicates rates and implements costs. So uh, the state commissions will have a, a say in that. Uh, what, what we what might see is a lot of uh, uh, involvement in, in the state legislatures and the governors on questions like that. and We'll see how that unfolds and how that affects what the states are trying to do. We've got about uh, four minutes left for the, for Q and I'll sit right now. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Chuck. You whizzed right through a lot of very very important things, and I want to thank our panelists for very very thoughtful uh, discussions. And uh, let's open it up for a few concise questions uh, from from all of you. Any questions? Okay, we'll start over right here. Um, I have a question for the panel in general. What is your sense of a rate-based versus mass-based program being more
2: advantageous for implementing renewable energy?
0: Does everybody want to speak at once? <laughs> uh,
2: first I'll start with uh, I won't speak for uh I don't even speak
1: for the agency, let alone the other members on the panel. Um, first of all, uh, let me just uh, thank my fellow panelists for uh, validating my comment about how hard um, uh, they and their members have worked with, and I think, you know, without even trying to illustrate the huge investment um, uh, you all made. And I guess the slogan is, we're EPA, and you're here to help us. You know there there uh, there are going to be two schools of thought about that, and that's what drove our uh, being very even-handed in putting out a rate-based option and a a mass-based option. There are many people who think that um, to the extent that any megawatt hour uh, that carries with it zero carbon emissions um, is going to have uh, economic value that's realizable in the electricity market and in the compliance market. And there are those who think that um, uh, under a rate-based program, the generation of an emission reduction credit uh, in monetizing um, uh, uh, in the form of an ERC, emission reduction credit, um, uh, the, the value of renewable energy is, is important. Uh, and we've heard both sides of that. And, and So you know we've designed an agnostic program. Um, and there may be other factors in the way energy is regulated at a state level that end up being decisive, um, not inherent, not the inherent design of, of the
0: program. Are you going to say something, Bill? No, I'm not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so there's more to learn about all of that. We'll go here and then number two one. Okay, here first.
5: I wonder if any of the panelists
4: have uh, uh, looked into the problem of uh, regulatory or religious uh, delays. Uh, I, I understand that in 2010, a study of many hundreds of uh, energy, plant, energy projects that had been stalled or discontinued because of NEPA on, uh, litigation. 45% of those turned out to be renewable energy. So conceivably, the states wanted to do something innovative or that uh, took a new path. There could be such problems. Have you have looked into this issue there any, any steps taken to pro- try to minimize those kinds of problems? I'll take a shot at this. Um, I
2: won't
3: comment on any NEPA delays or not, but um, I can comment on the state and local permitting agencies' responses to major projects. Uh, we've testified this in the past, and um, what we have found is when states receive a complete application, a complete application uh, from the entity seeking the uh, permit, um, we act very quickly on those. There have been some criticisms in the past that it um, takes you know many years to get through some of these permit applications. But when you then examine what the reasons were, you know, almost without exception, because we would have, we would get a permit on the the applicant that just wasn't satisfactory. I, I will make one more comment. You know, the dynamic here is is, is very different now. We are going to be relying on a lot of these projects, including renewable portfolio standards in lake, uh, to meet our compliance strategies. And that's going to be important to governors, and it's going to be important to other elected officials and non-elected officials in the area. And that will place a tremendous amount of pressure.
2: If we already have the pressure, but even more, on state and local regulators to make
3: quick actions. But we're not going to circumvent the requirements that uh, we have to. Uh, me with regard to the review of those projects. I agree. a okay. question where I follow a similar line from Chuck said. It's interesting when you think about it, cap and trade from the point of view of utility
4: regulators is irrelevant. Because suppose the state says will cap and
3: trade, the utility still has to make the choice
4: They, it, it's not a new thing. Um, when we were working with Whack and Martin, you know, there was a lot of state interest in doing that. I mean, there's a lot of opposition. It was very political as well. But there was, I think, a, a feeling that we can do this back then, and I think we're still seeing that now. And I think uh, it's just the start of the decision-making process for the utility commission. They want to see if that, is that the right, proven choice that the utility did this versus that, and that won't change. I think that's that's going to continue. To regardless of how, to, you know, the, the path that uh, the state
5: takes. Thanks that. Yep. Thanks. I would just add to that, I think there's, Chuck's actually correct, as, as you are, but there's an end. And the end is, there's a McKinsey study from eight or ten years ago that says we spend in this country on the order of $60 billion a year on energy efficiency, not, not kind of real efficiency. Of that amount, there's probably 7 or $8 that's under the purview of the utilities, utility, utility commissions. Now, not all of the rest is something you can count and aggregate for well, but there's obviously a huge amount. So if we have a great perspective or, or an aggregation of, of that, those efficiency savings, there needs to be some kind of a certifying body or some kind of a process to capture those as well. And it does begin in there, but I just think it's that going back to the least cost uh, perspective. If you leave those other things just uh, lying on the table and don't count them from a state perspective, we will absolutely cause uh, ratepayers, pairs consumers' businesses pay more than they need to for this approach. And that, that's our principal concern about that issue. Just a quick point. Your, your point is well
3: Uh All I can say, and we are agnostic to the compliance strategy the state um, pursues, whether it's cap and trade or you know, something else. But when you talk with Northeastern and mid-Atlantic officials who have spent the past decade implementing this program, um, they are um, at the front line Telling others um, all the benefits of considering such a program, and if this program were called peanut butter and jelly, and not cap and trade, you know, I, you know, it, it, would, it would take off like gangbusters. But because cap and trade, you know, has such um, sort of a majority um, tone to it, uh, people immediately close their eyes. But uh, for those who are affected by all this, all I say is, and you're not in the Northeast, or Atlantic. Spend some time talking with those that have been engaged in this and you will learn, as I have,
2: um, how much easier
3: it is. They've done all the tough stuff.
2: They they have the
3: experience and they kind of made mid course corrections. Um, They will tell you how much easier it is to go in that route than it is to do it on your own. But but we are not doing that, but just an observation I can share.
1: Compliance is something that will require investment. And, uh, you know, to maybe try to unite the discussion uh, of a minute ago with the answer to this question, it's cap and trade systems or emission credit trading systems really just provide a medium for the market for compliance. Mark Cooper suggested another other panelists suggested, um, you know, emission reduction credits or allowances that are tradable don't just appear overnight uh, uh, through spontaneous generation. Someone has to go out and uh, raise capital and hire people um, to uh, adopt these compliance measures. Uh, and uh, in some ways, um, you know, we know that this industry will be making hundreds of millions of dollars of investments every year just to to keep going, if you will, and to respond to changes that they have to face, even without environmental controls. What environmental controls do is add an increment um, of of, uh, of spending and hiring um, uh, to ensure that those investments result in cleaner generation.
0: Um, okay, we'll take one last question. This isn't is really a question, but a response also to um
3: as an opportunity. Whether it's you know hiring people um, to the delegates question or whether it's um, finding a competitive edge, um, it, it really was quite amazing how you can take this role that many people are complaining about and turn this into an opportunity. And um and, and one more opportunity that we haven't really talked about that I know we don't have time to do is even if um, somebody just really dislike the notion of reducing greenhouse gases. There are collateral, very important, air quality health benefits um, that also have dominant implications, by the way, that occur from this. Reducing fine particles that kill people, reducing sulfur dioxide, reducing small forming emissions, all are a collateral benefit from this program. So smart people like yourselves should look at this as not just an additional (coughs) imposition on industry, but an opportunity to really gain a
0: competitive advantage. Uh, thank you, Bill, because I think that was a very good way to close this up in terms of really recognizing that while the Clean Power Plan um, has a, a, you know, a key function in terms of how to reduce greenhouse emissions. At the same time, it was done to make sure that there could be multiple, multiple benefits and, question, and other questions with regard to health, clean air, clean environment also addressed. And so I think that it is an opportunity. And Your comment also reminded me of um, a note I received from a board member saying that in office, there was a major letter that was sent by um, a large number of investors two major corporations across the country talking about how important it was for the same power plan to move forward as opposed to being stopped um, because of looking ahead and looking at all of the opportunities and the need to really address all of these multiple uh, problems that have multiple benefits if we address them. So I want to thank all of you for coming. I want to thank all of our wonderful wonderful panelists for their very very thoughtful careful presentations a lot of information Uh, we'll try and have these presentations and everything up on the website as soon as possible look forward to your further questions please please let us know we want to help make sure that all of this is able to proceed in a way that can be as collaborative as what you have seen, the work that is going on by these organizations by really trying to look at the issues and how can we solve them
2: together. So thank you all very, very much for being here.